Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 1. His illness, the suspension of his labors, his journey to New England, his death, concluding reflections. We have seen with what difficulty Mr. Brainerd performed his last journey. We are now to view him closing the painful, weary journey of life, his body wasting under the influence of a mortal disease, while he is strengthened with might by the spirit in his inner man. The time of his departure is at hand. He feels that he must soon put off this mortal coil. But like the good soldier of Jesus Christ, he will wear his armor to the last. He will fight against Satan's kingdom to the latest hour, and die, smiling at the thought, that the captain he serves must be victorious. One loves to visit the chamber where the good man meets his fate, and we generally find that amidst his consolations, this is none of the least, that the cause of religion must prosper after he is gathered to his fathers and is no more seen. This is happily illustrated in the case of David. The whole earth shall be full of his glory, exclaimed the dying patriarch, and he prayed no more. His soul departed to God who gave it. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm, said Dr. Owen. But while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under-rower will be inconsiderable. And the friend of Brainerd who wrote his life and witnessed his last hour says, He expressed on his deathbed a full persuasion that he should in heaven see the prosperity of the church on earth and should rejoice with Christ therein, and the consideration of it was highly pleasing to his mind. One of our poets has illustrated that the ruling passion is strong in death, and in the case of Brainerd, it is strikingly exemplified. His ruling passion was love to God and love to souls, and it reigned with undiminished predominance to the last. While he could walk and ride, he went about doing good, and while he could speak, his tongue was never silent in recommending to sinners the Savior he so ardently wished them to embrace. These remarks are confirmed by his diary. Lord's Day, September 21, 1746 I was so weak I could not preach, nor ride over to my people in the forenoon. In the afternoon I rode out, sat in my chair, and discoursed to my people from Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. I was strengthened in my discourse, and there appeared something agreeable in the assembly. I returned to my lodgings extremely tired, but thankful that I had been able to speak a word to my poor people. I was able to sleep a little through weariness and pain. Oh, how blessed should I be if the little I do were all done with right views. 27th. I spent this as the week passed under a great degree of bodily weakness, exercised with a violent cough and a considerable fever, had no appetite to any kind of food, and frequently brought up what I eat, as soon as it was down. I was able, however, to ride over to my people about two miles every day and take some care of those who were then at work upon a small house for me to reside in among the Indians. I was sometimes scarce able to walk and never able to sit up the whole day. Yet I was calm and composed, and but little exercised with melancholy as in former seasons. It was many times a comfort to me that life and death did not depend upon my choice. I was pleased to think that he who is infinitely wise had the determination of this matter, and that I had no trouble to consider and weigh things upon all sides, in order to make the choice whether I would live or die. I could with great composure look death in the face, and frequently with sensible joy. Oh, how blessed it is to be habitually prepared for death! The Lord grant that I may be actually ready also. Lord's Day, September 21st. 
I rode to my people, and though under much weakness, discoursed about half an hour, at which season divine power seemed to attend the word, but being extremely weak I was obliged to desist, and after a turn of faintness, with much difficulty rode to my lodgings, where, betaking myself to my bed, I lay in a burning fever and almost delirious for several hours till towards morning. My fever went off with a violent sweat. I have often been feverish after preaching, but this was the most distressing turn that ever preaching brought upon me. Yet I felt perfectly at rest in my own mind because I had made my utmost attempts to speak for God. 30th. Yesterday and today I was scarce able to sit up half the day, but I was in a composed frame and remarkably free from dejection and melancholy, as God has been pleased to deliver me from these unhappy glooms in the general course of my present weakness hitherto, and also from a peevish spirit. Oh, that I may always be able to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Saturday, October 4th. I spent the former part of this week under a great degree of disorder, as I had done several weeks before. Was able, however, to ride a little every day, although unable to sit up half the day, and took some care daily of persons at work upon my house. On Friday afternoon I found myself wonderfully revived and strengthened, and having some time before given notice to my people, and those of the Forks of Delaware in particular, that I designed to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper upon the first Sabbath in October, on Friday afternoon I preached preparatory to the sacrament from Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. I was surprisingly strengthened in my work while I was speaking, but was obliged immediately after to repair to bed, being now removed into my own house among the Indians, which gave me such speedy relief as I could not well have lived without. I spent some time on Friday night in conversing with my people as I lay upon my bed and found my soul refreshed. This being Saturday, I discoursed particularly with divers of the communicants, and this afternoon preached from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. There seemed to be a tender melting and hearty mourning for sin in the congregation. My soul was in a comfortable frame, and I was myself, as well as most of the congregation, much affected with the humble confession and apparent brokenheartedness of a backslider, and could not but rejoice that God had given him such a sense of his sin and unworthiness. I was extremely tired in the evening, but lay on my bed and discoursed to my people. Lord's Day, October 5th. I was still very weak, and in the morning afraid I should not be able to go through the work of the day. I discoursed before the administration of the sacrament from John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The Divine Presence attended this discourse, and the assembly was considerably melted. After sermon, I baptized two persons and then administered the Lord's Supper to nearly forty communicants of the Indians, besides diverse dear Christians of the white people. It was a season of divine power and grace, and numbers rejoiced in God. Oh, the sweet union and harmony then appearing among the religious people. My soul was refreshed, and my friends of the white people with me. After the sacrament, I could scarcely get home, but was supported by my friends and laid on my bed, where I lay in pain till the evening, and then was able to set up and discourse with my friends. Oh, how was this day spent in prayers and praises among my dear people! One might hear them all the morning before public worship, and in the evening till near midnight, praying and singing praises to God in one or other of their houses. Eleventh. Towards night I was seized with an ague, which was followed with a hard fever and much pain. I was treated with great kindness and was ashamed to see so much concern about so unworthy a creature. I was in a comfortable frame of mind, wholly submissive with regard to life or death. It was indeed a peculiar satisfaction to me to think that it was not my business to determine whether I should live or die. 
I likewise felt peculiarly satisfied, while under this uncommon degree of disorder, being now fully convinced of my being really unable to perform my work. Oh, how precious is time! And how guilty it makes me feel when I think I have trifled away and misemployed it, or neglected to fill up each part of it with duty to the utmost of my ability. Nineteenth. I was willing either to die or live, but found it hard to think of living useless. Oh, that I might never live to be a burden to God's creation, but that I might be allowed to repair home when my sojourning work is done. Twenty-fourth. I spent the day in overseeing and directing my people about mending their fence and securing their wheat. I was somewhat refreshed in the evening, having been able to do something valuable in the daytime. Oh, how it pains me to see time pass away when I can do nothing to any purpose. Twenty-fifth. I visited some of my people, spent some time in writing, and felt much better in body than usual. When it was near night, I felt so well that I had thoughts of expounding, but in the evening was much disordered again, and spent the night in coughing and spitting of blood. Lord's Day, October 26th. In the morning I was exceeding weak, and spent the day till near night in pain to see my poor people wandering as sheep not having a shepherd. But towards night, finding myself a little better, I called them together to my house, and sat down, and read and expounded Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This discourse, though delivered in much weakness, was attended with power, especially what was spoken upon the last of these verses, where I insisted on the infinite wrong done to religion by having our light become darkness instead of shining before men. As many were deeply affected with a sense of their deficiency in regard of a spiritual conversation, and a spirit of concern and watchfulness seemed to be excited in them. So there was one that had fallen into drunkenness some time before, who was now deeply convinced of his sin, and discovered a great degree of grief and concern on that account. My soul was refreshed to see this. And though I had no strength to speak so much as I would have done, but was obliged to lie down on the bed, yet I rejoiced to see such an humble melting in the congregation, and that divine truths, though faintly delivered, were attended with so much efficacy. 27th. I spent the day in directing the Indians about mending the fence around their wheat, and was able to walk with them and contrive their business all the afternoon. In the afternoon I was visited by two dear friends and spent some time in conversation with them. Towards night I was able to walk out and take care of the Indians again. 28th. I rode to Princeton in a very weak state, had such a violent fever by the way that I was forced to alight at a friend's house and lie down for some time. Near night I was visited by Mr. Treat, Mr. Beatty, and his wife and another friend. My spirits were refreshed to see them, but I was surprised and even ashamed that they had taken so much pains as to ride thirty or forty miles to see me. November 1st. I took leave of my friends and returned home. Lord's Day, November 2nd. I was unable to preach and scarcely able to sit up the whole day. I was almost sunk to see my poor people destitute of the means of grace, and especially considering they could not read, and so were under great disadvantages for spending the Sabbath comfortably. Oh, methought, I could be contented to be sick if my poor flock had a faithful pastor to feed them. A view of their want of this was more afflictive to me than all my bodily illness. Third, being now in so low a state that I was utterly incapable of performing my work and having little hope of recovery unless by much riding, I thought it my duty to take a journey into New England. I accordingly took leave of my congregation this day. Before I left my people, I visited them all in their respective houses and discoursed to each one as I thought most suitable for their circumstances and found great freedom in so doing. I scarce left one house, but some were in tears, not only affected with my being about to leave them, but with the solemn address I made, for I was helped to be fervent in spirit. 
when I had thus gone through my congregation, which took me most of the day, and had taken leave of them and of the school, I rode about two miles to the house where I lived in the summer past, and there lodged. Fourth, I rode to Woodbridge and lodged with Mr. Pearson. Fifth, I rode to Elizabethtown, intending as soon as possible to prosecute my journey, but I was in an hour or two taken much worse. For near a week I was confined to my chamber, and most of the time to my bed, and then so far revived as to be able to walk about the house, but was still confined within doors. I was enabled to maintain a calm, composed, and patient spirit, as I had from the beginning of my weakness. After I had been in Elizabethtown about a fortnight, and had so far recovered that I was able to walk about the house, upon a day of thanksgiving kept in this place, I was enabled to recount the mercies of God in such a manner as greatly affected me, and filled me with thankfulness to God, especially for his work of grace among the Indians, and the enlargement of his kingdom. Lord, glorify thyself, was the cry of my soul. Oh, that all people might love and praise the blessed God. After this comfortable season, I frequently enjoyed enlargement of soul in prayer for my dear congregation, very often for every family and every person in particular, and it was a great comfort to me that I could pray heartily to God for those whom I was not allowed to see. In the latter end of December, I grew still weak and continued to do so till the latter end of January, 1746 through 47 and having a violent cough, a considerable fever, and no appetite for any manner of food, I was reduced to so low a state that my friends generally despaired of my life, and for some time together thought I could scarcely live a day to an end. On Lord's Day, February 1st, If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? This text I was helped to plead and saw the divine faithfulness engaged for dealing with me better than any earthly parent can do with his child. This season so refreshed my soul that my body seemed also to be a gainer by it, and from this time I began gradually to amend. And as I recovered some strength, vigor, and spirit, I found at times some life in the exercises of devotion and longings after spirituality and a life of usefulness. Twenty-fourth, I was able to ride as far as Newark, having been confined within Elizabethtown almost four months, and the next day returned to Elizabethtown. My spirits were somewhat refreshed with the ride, though my body was weary. 28th. I was visited by an Indian of my own congregation who brought me letters and good news of the behavior of my people in general. This refreshed my soul, and I could not but retire and bless God for his goodness. March 11th. Being kept in Elizabethtown as a day of fasting and prayer, I was able to attend public worship, which was the first time since December 21st. Oh, how much distress did God carry me through in this space of time! But having obtained help from Him, I yet live. Oh, that I could live to His glory! 18th. I rode to my people, and on Friday walked about among them, and inquired into their state and concerns, and found an additional weight on my spirits upon hearing some things disagreeable. I endeavored to go to God with my distresses, but notwithstanding my mind continued very gloomy. About ten o'clock I called my people together, and after having explained and sung a psalm, I prayed with them. There was a considerable deal of affection among them, I doubt not, that which was more than merely natural. This was the last interview that he ever had with his people. About eleven o'clock the same day he left them, and the next day came to Elizabethtown. Twenty-eighth. I was taken this morning with a violent griping. These pains were extreme and constant for several hours, so that it seemed impossible for me, without a miracle, to live twenty-four hours. 
I lay confined to my bed the whole day, but it pleased God to bless means for the abatement of my distress. I was exceedingly weakened by this pain and continued so for several days following. In this distressed case, death appeared agreeable to me as an entrance into a place where the weary are at rest, and I had some relish of the entertainments of the heavenly state, so that by these I was allured and drawn as well as driven by the fatigues of life. Oh, how happy it is to be drawn by desires of a state of perfect holiness. April 4th. I was uneasy by reason of the misemployment of time and yet knew not what to do. I longed to spend time in fasting and prayer, but alas, I had no bodily strength. Oh, how blessed a thing it is to enjoy peace of conscience. How dreadful is a want of inward peace. It is impossible, I find, to enjoy this happiness without redeeming time and maintaining a spiritual frame of mind. Lord's Day, April 5th. It grieved me to find myself so inconceivably barren. My soul thirsted for grace, but alas, how far was I from obtaining what I saw so excellent. I was ready to despair of ever being holy, and yet my soul was desirous of following hard after God. But never did I see myself so far from having apprehended or being already perfect. The Lord's Supper being this day administered, in the season of communion I enjoyed warmth of affection and felt a tender love to the brethren, and to the glorious Redeemer, the firstborn among them. I endeavored then to bring forth mine and his enemies, and slay them before him, and found great freedom in begging deliverance from this spiritual death, as well as in asking favors for my friends and congregation, and the Church of Christ in general. Seventeenth, in the evening God helped me to draw near to the throne of grace, and gave me a sense of his favor, which gave me inexpressible support and encouragement. I could not but rejoice that ever God should discover his reconciled face to such a vile sinner. Shame and confusion at times covered me, and then hope and joy and admiration of divine goodness. Twenty-first, I set out on my journey for New England. I traveled to New York and there lodged. Lord's Day, May 10th. At Had Lyme, I could not but feel gratitude to God that he had always disposed me in my ministry to insist on the great doctrines of regeneration, a new creature, faith in Christ, progressive sanctification, supreme love to God, living entirely to the glory of God, being not our own, and the like. God has helped me to see from time to time that these and the like doctrines necessarily connected with them are the only foundation of safety and salvation for perishing sinners, and that those divine dispositions which are consonant hereto are that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The exercise of these godlike tempers, wherein the soul acts in a kind of concert with God, would be and do everything that is pleasing to God. This I saw would stand by the soul in a dying hour, for God must deny himself if he cast away his own image, even the soul that is one in desires with himself. Lord's Day, May 17th. Though I felt much dullness this week, yet I had some glimpses of the excellency of divine things, and especially in one morning the beauty of holiness as a likeness to the glorious God, was so discovered to me that I longed earnestly to be in that world where holiness dwells in perfection, that I might please God, live entirely to Him, and glorify Him to the utmost stretch of my capacities. Lord's Day, May 24th, at Long Meadow in Springfield. I could not but think, as I have often remarked to others, that much more of true religion consists in deep humility, brokenness of heart, and an abasing sense of want of holiness than most who are called Christians imagine. 28th. He arrived at Northampton and took up his abode with President Edwards, and the following delightful eulogy on his character was written by this most eminent servant of Christ, 
and inserted in his life, of which this is chiefly an abridgment. I had much opportunity before this of particular information concerning him, but now I had opportunity for a more full acquaintance with him. I found him remarkably sociable, pleasant, and entertaining in his conversation, yet solid, savory, spiritual, and very profitable. Appearing meek, modest, and humble, far from any stiffness, moroseness, superstitious demureness, or affected singularity in speech or behavior. We enjoyed not only the benefit of his conversation, but had the comfort of hearing him pray in the family from time to time. His manner of praying was becoming a worm of the dust, and a disciple of Christ, addressing an infinitely great and holy God and Father of mercies, not with florid expressions or a studied eloquence, not with any intemperate vehemence or indecent boldness, at the greatest distance from any appearance of ostentation and from everything that might look as though he meant to recommend himself to those that were about him or set himself off to their acceptance, free from vain repetitions without impertinent excursions or needless multiplying of words. He expressed himself with the strictest propriety, with weight and pungency, and yet what his lips uttered seemed to flow from the fullness of his heart, as deeply impressed with a great and solemn sense of our necessities, unworthiness, and dependence, and on God's infinite greatness, excellency, and sufficiency, rather than merely from a warm and fruitful brain. And I know not that I ever heard him so much as ask a blessing or return a thanks at a table, but there was something remarkable to be observed both in the matter and manner of the performance. In his prayers, he insisted much on the prosperity of Zion, the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world, and the flourishing and propagation of religion among the Indians. And he generally made it one petition in his prayer, that we might not outlive our usefulness. This week he consulted Dr. Mather at my house concerning his illness, who plainly told him there were great evidences of his being in a confirmed consumption, and that he could give him no encouragement that he should ever recover but it seemed not to occasion the least discomposure in him, nor to make any alteration as to the freedom or pleasantness of his conversation. Being advised by his physician still to continue writing, he had finally determined on a visit to Boston, and on the 9th of June he began this journey accompanied by one of Mr. Edwards's family. His diary unfolds the state of his health and of his mind with the circumstances which occurred during his journey. June 9th. I set out on a journey from Northampton to Boston. Having now continued to ride for some considerable time, I felt myself much better, and I found that in proportion to the prospect I had of being restored to a state of usefulness, so I desired the continuance of life. But death appeared inconceivably more desirable to me than a useless life. Yet, blessed be God, I found my heart fully resigned to this greatest of afflictions, if God saw fit thus to deal with me. Twelfth. I arrived in Boston this day, somewhat fatigued with my journey. There is no rest but in God. Fatigues of body and anxieties of mind attend us, both in town and country. Eighteenth, I was taken exceedingly ill and brought to the gates of death by the breaking of small ulcers in my lungs, as my physician supposed. In this extremely weak state, I continued several weeks and was frequently so low as to be utterly speechless. And even after I had so far revived as to step out of doors, I was exercised with a faint turn, which continued usually four or five hours, at which times, though I could say yes or no, yet I could not speak one sentence without making stops for breath, and diverse times in this season my friends gathered round my bed to see me breathe my last. 
How I was the first day or two of my illness with regard to the exercise of reason, I scarcely know. But the third day, and constantly afterwards, for four or five weeks together, I enjoyed much serenity of mind and clearness of thought, as perhaps I ever did in my life. And I think my mind never penetrated with so much ease and freedom into divine things, and I never felt so capable of demonstrating the truth of many important doctrines of the gospel as now. As God was pleased to afford me a clearness of thought almost continually for several weeks together, so he enabled me in some measure to employ my time to valuable purposes. I was enabled to write a number of important letters to friends in remote places, and sometimes I wrote when I was speechless, i.e., unable to maintain conversation with anybody. Besides this, I had many visitants, with whom, when I was able to speak, I always conversed of the things of religion, and was peculiarly assisted in distinguishing between true and false religion. And especially, I discoursed repeatedly on the nature and necessity of that humiliation, self-emptiness, or full conviction of a person's being utterly undone in himself, which is necessary in order to a saving faith, and the extreme difficulty of being brought to this, and the great danger there is of persons taking up with some self-righteous appearances of it. The danger of this I especially dwelt upon, being persuaded that multitudes perish from this hidden way, and because so little is said from most pulpits to discover any danger here, so that persons being never effectually brought to die to themselves are never truly united to Christ. I also discoursed much on what I take to be the essence of true religion, that God-like temper and disposition of soul, and that holy conversation and behavior that may justly claim the honor of having God for its original and patron. And I have reason to hope God blessed my discourses to some, both ministers and people, so that my time was not wholly lost. While he was at Boston, he was requested by the commissioners of a society for propagating the gospel in New England and places adjacent to recommend to them two missionaries, and they also consulted him on the propriety of sending them to those Indians called the Six Nations. His advice greatly pleased them, and they entered very high ideas of his prudence and piety. About this time, he wrote from Boston the following interesting and affectionate letters, to which he refers in the last page, the first to his brother Israel, who was then at college, the second to a young gentleman, a candidate for the ministry, and the last to his brother John at Bethel, the town of Christian Indians in New Jersey. To his brother Israel at college, written a few months before his death. My dear brother, Boston, June 30th, 1747. It is from the side of eternity I now address you. I am heartily sorry that I have so little strength to write what I long to communicate to you. But let me tell you, my brother, eternity is another thing than we ordinarily take it to be. Oh, how fast and boundless. Oh, how fixed and unutterable. Oh, of what infinite importance is it that we be prepared for eternity. I have been just dying for more than a week, and all around me have thought so. But in this time I have had clear views of eternity, have seen the blessedness of the godly, and have longed to share their happy state, as well as been comfortably satisfied that I shall do so. But oh, what anguish is raised in my mind to think of an eternity for those who are Christless, for those who bring their false hopes to the grave with them. The sight was so dreadful, I could by no means bear it. My thoughts recoiled, and I said, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? O oh, methought that I could now see my friends, that I might warn them to see to it, that they lay their foundation for eternity. And you, my dear brother, I have been particularly concerned for, and have wondered I so much neglected conversing with you about your spiritual state at our last meeting. O oh, let me beseech you now to examine whether you are indeed a new creature, 
whether the glory of God has ever been the highest concern with you, whether you have ever been reconciled to all the perfections of God, in a word, whether God has been your portion and holy conformity to him, your chief delight. If you have reason to think you are graceless, oh, give yourself and the throne of grace no rest till God arise and save you. But if the case should be otherwise, bless God for his grace and press after holiness. Oh, my dear brother, flee fleshly lusts and the enchanting amusements as well as corrupt doctrines of the present today and strive to live to God. Take this as the last line from your affectionate dying brother, David Brainerd. To a young gentleman candidate for the ministry, written at the same time as above. Very dear sir, how amazing is it that the living who know they must die should notwithstanding put far away the evil day in a season of health and prosperity and live at such an awful distance from the grave and the great concerns beyond it and especially that any whose minds have been divinely enlightened to behold the important things of eternity should live in this manner. And yet, sir, how frequently is this the case? How rare are the instances of those who live and act from day to day as on the verge of eternity, striving to fill up all their remaining moments in the service and to the honor of their great master, and are so strangely amused as in a great measure to lose a sense of the holiness necessary to prepare us to be inhabitants of the heavenly paradise. But, oh, dear sir, a dying bed, if we enjoy our reason, will give another view of things. I have now, for more than three weeks, lain under the greatest weakness, the greater part of the time expecting daily and hourly to enter into the eternal world. Sometimes I have been so far gone as to be speechless for some hours together. And, oh, of what vast importance has a holy spiritual life appeared to me in this season. I have longed to call upon all my friends, to make it their business to live to God, and especially all that are designed for or engaged in the service of the sanctuary. Oh, dear sir, do not think it enough to live at the rate of common Christians. Alas, to how little purpose do they often converse when they meet together. The visits, even of those who are called Christians indeed, are frequently quite barren, and conscience cannot but condemn us for the misemployment of time, while we have been conversant with them. But the way to enjoy the divine presence and be fitted for his service is to live a life of great devotion and constant self-dedication to him, observing the motions and dispositions of our own hearts, whence we may learn the corruptions that lodge there and our constant need of help from God for the performance of the least duty. And, oh, dear sir, let me beseech you frequently to attend to the great and precious duties of secret fasting and prayer. I have a secret thought, from some things I have observed, that God may perhaps design you for some singular service in the world. O oh, then, labor to be prepared and qualified to do much for God. Suffer me to entreat you earnestly to give yourself to prayer, to reading and meditation, on divine truths. Strive to penetrate to the bottom of them and never be content with a superficial knowledge. By this means, your thoughts will grow weighty and judicious, and you thereby will be possessed of a valuable treasure, out of which you may produce things new and old to the glory of God. And now I commend you to the grace of God, earnestly desiring that a plentiful portion of the divine spirit may rest upon you, that you may live to God in every capacity and do abundant for him in public, if it be his will, and that you may be richly qualified for the inheritance of the saints in light. I scarcely expect to see your face any more in the body, and therefore entreat you to accept this as the last token of love from your sincerely affectionate dying friend, David Brainerd. To his brother John at Bethel, the town of Christian Indians in New Jersey, written at Boston before his death. Dear brother, 
I am now just on the verge of eternity, expecting very speedily to appear in the unseen world. I feel myself no more an inhabitant on earth, and sometimes earnestly long to depart and be with Christ. I bless God, he has for some years given me an abiding conviction, that it is impossible for any rational creature to enjoy true happiness without being entirely devoted to him. Under the influence of this conviction, I have in some measure acted. Oh, that I had done more so. I saw both the excellency and necessity of holiness, but never in such a manner as now, when I am just brought to the side of the grave. Oh, my brother, pursue after holiness. Press toward the blessed mark, and let your thirsty soul continually say, I shall never be satisfied till I awake in thy likeness. And now, my dear brother, as I must press you to pursue after personal holiness, to be as much in fasting and prayer as your health will allow, and to live above the rate of common Christians, so I must entreat you, so attend to your public work. Labor to distinguish between true and false religion, and to that end, watch the motions of God's Spirit upon your own heart, look to Him for help, and impartially compare your experiences with His word. Charge my people, in the name of their dying minister, yea, in the name of Him who was dead and is alive, to live and walk as become the gospel. Tell them how great the expectations of God and his people are from them, and how awfully they will wound God's cause if they fall into vice, as well as fatally prejudice other poor Indians. Always insist that their joys are delusive, although they may have been wrapped up into the third heavens, unless the main tenor of their lives be spiritual, watchful, and holy. In pressing these things, thou shalt both save thyself and those that hear thee. God knows I was heartily willing to have served him longer in the work of the ministry, although it had still been attended with all the labors and hardships of past years, if he had seen fit that it should be so. But as his will now appears otherwise, I am fully content, and can with the utmost freedom say, The will of the Lord be done. It affects me to think of leaving you in a world of sin. My heart pities you, that those storms and tempests are yet before you, which through grace I am almost delivered from. But God lives, and blessed be my rock. He is the same Almighty Friend, and will I trust be your guide and helper, as he has been mine. And now, my dear brother, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. May you enjoy the divine presence, both in private and public, and may the arms of your hands be made strong by the right hand of the mighty God of Jacob, which are passionate desires and prayers of your affectionate dying brother, David Brainerd. The account of Mr. Brainerd's further continuance at Boston, his return to Northampton, and of the state of his mind, with the circumstances of his departure from this world to a better, is so interestingly related by President Edwards, who was for the most part a witness of the scene, that I cannot, I think, render my reader a more acceptable service than by suffering him to conclude the narrative. Mr. Brainerd's restoration from his extremely low state in Boston, so as to go abroad again and to travel, was very unexpected to him and his friends. My daughter, who was with him, writes thus concerning him in a letter dated June 23rd. On Thursday, he was very ill of a violent fever and extreme pain in his head and breast, and at turns delirious. So he remained till Saturday evening, when he seemed to be in the agonies of death. The family were up with him till one or two o'clock, expecting every hour would be his last. On Sabbath day, he was little revived. His head was better, but very full of pain and exceeding sore at his breast, much put to it for breath. Yesterday he was better upon all accounts. Last night he slept but little. This morning he is much worse. Dr. Pynchon says he has no hopes of life, nor does he think it likely he will ever come out of his chamber. 
His physician, Joseph Pynchon Esquire, when he visited him in Boston, attributed his sinking so suddenly into a state so nigh unto death to the breaking of ulcers that had been long gathering in his lungs, and there discharging and diffusing their purulent matter, which, while nature was laboring and struggling to throw off, which could be done no otherwise than by a gradual straining of it through the small vessels of those vital parts, this occasioned an high fever and violent coughing and threw the whole frame of nature into the utmost disorder. But supposed, if the strength of nature held till the lungs had this way gradually cleared themselves of this putrid matter, he might revive and continue better, till new ulcers gathered and broke. But then he would surely sink again, and that there was no hope of his recovery. But, as he expressed himself to one of my neighbors, he was as certainly a dead man as if he was shot through the heart. But it was so ordered in divine providence that the strength of nature held out through this great conflict, so just as to escape the grave at that turn, and then he revived to the astonishment of all who knew his case. After he began to revive, he was visited by his youngest brother, Mr. Israel Brainerd, a student at Yale College, who, having heard of his extreme illness, went hence from Boston in order to see him. This visit was attended with a mixture of joy and sorrow to Mr. Brainerd. He greatly rejoiced to see his brother, especially because he had desired an opportunity of some religious conversation with him before he died. But this meeting was attended with sorrow, as his brother brought him the tidings of his sister Spencer's death at Haddam, a sister between whom and him had long subsisted a peculiarly dear affection and much intimacy in spiritual matters. He had heard nothing of her sickness till this report of her death. But he had these comforts, together with the tidings, a confidence of her being gone to heaven, and an expectation of his soon meeting her there. His brother continued with him until he left the town and came with him from thence to Northampton. Concerning the last Sabbath Mr. Brainerd spent at Boston, he writes in his diary as follows. Lord's Day, July 19th. I was just able to attend public worship, being carried to the house of God in a chaise. I heard Dr. Seawall preach in the forenoon, partook of the Lord's Supper at this time. In the sacrament I saw astonishing wisdom displayed, such wisdom as required the tongues of angels and glorified saints to celebrate. It seemed to me I never should do anything at adoring the infinite wisdom of God, discovered in the contrivance of man's redemption, until I arrived at a world of perfection. Yet I could not help striving to call upon my soul and all within me to bless the name of God. The next day he set out in the cool of the afternoon on his journey to Northampton, attended by his brother, and my daughter that went with him to Boston, and would have been accompanied out of the town by a number of gentlemen, had not his aversion to anything of pomp and show prevented it. 25th. I arrived here, Northampton, having set out from Boston on Monday about 4 o'clock p.m. In this journey I rode about 16 miles a day, one with another. I was sometimes extremely tired, so that it seemed impossible to me to proceed any further. At other times I was considerably better, and felt some freedom both of body and of mind. Lord's Day, July 26. This day I saw clearly that God himself could not make me happy unless I could be in a capacity to please and glorify him forever. Take away this, and admit me into all the fine heavens that can be conceived by men or angels, and I should still be miserable forever. Though he had so far revived as to be able to travel thus far, yet he manifested no expectation of recovery. He supposed, as his physician did, that his being brought so near to death at Boston was owing to the breaking ulcers in his lungs. He told me that he had had several such ill turns before, only not to so high a degree, but as he supposed, owing to the same cause, and that he was brought lower and lower every time, 
and it appeared to him that in his last sickness in boston he was brought as low as possible and yet alive and that he had not the least expectation of surviving the next return of this breaking of ulcers but still appeared perfectly calm end of chapter eight part one